So welcome back, everyone. And I'm happy to be with you this evening. <clears throat> and as I look around, um, you know, there are a few people here that I've met before. Uh, most of you, there's no one here I know well, and almost everyone here uh, I've never met before at all. But what strikes me, I was just reflecting on that, but there are, of course, uh, a few commonalities that we all share. And there's one thing that I feel, even though I don't know you, have never met you, I feel pretty confident is true for all of us in the room. This is going to sound a little silly, but I think every one of us here, I know, are trying to get more of what we want in life and have less of what we don't want. Is that true? Anybody here trying to have less of what you want happen or less of the experiences you want, have more of the experiences you don't want? No. Anybody want to have less pleasant and more unpleasant? No. Right? I mean, it does sound kind of silly, but... And we may or may not be conscious of it, but really I think everything we do is kind of in service of that goal. And we're not doing anything wrong. That is just what it is to be a human being, a living being, right? You could take, um, I don't know, I'm not a microbiologist, so if any of you are, I don't know if it really works this way, but you know, if there's you know, single-cell bacteria and whatever, if they like the light and you shine the light, they're going to kind of go towards it. Or if they don't like it, they'll go away. This is what living beings do, right? So we're not doing anything wrong. And I don't think we should stop doing that, right? The Dharma is not asking us to stop uh, taking care of our lives or try to make wise choices or, or changes if, we, if we're fortunate enough to be able to make changes depending on the circumstances. So I don't think we're doing anything wrong and we're not going to stop seeking more, our more pleasant experiences and having less unpleasant. There's nothing wrong with it except for one thing. Uh, you may have noticed that sometimes you get what you want. Um, sometimes you don't. And despite our best efforts, sometimes you get what you don't want. Right? And so if our happiness or our well-being is completely tied up in having to have things look a certain way and not look another way, that's a pretty fragile well-being. It's a pretty tenuous kind of happiness, right? Because, I mean, these are cliches when we say life is uncertain, uh, you know, that we only have so much control about things. Um, and we all know that it's true, but we don't live our lives as if it's true, right? And so I want to spend some time uh, just hanging out here with this and exploring this a bit because uh, it's really, really important. Um, you know, one of the core Dharma teachings is, is that everything's changing. And so, you know, we spend, again, we may or may not be conscious of it, but we, we seek those things, people, situations that we think will make us happy. We avoid those that we think will make us unhappy. And then we get what we get. And I think from a Dharma perspective, the invitation is to start to see, can we make a change in 
where we seek our well-being so it's not completely at the mercy or at the effect of external conditions that really are only so much within our control. But can we actually start, can we shift our relationships so can our well-being start to be more about how we're relating to whatever's happening rather than just the, the, the content of the experience? And that's a real important shift, right? And it's important because, you know, even if you could um, set your life up to be perfect, whatever that is, I don't know anybody who's done that. That would be a pretty tall order, I think, for any of us. But if you could do it... Um, Actually, that'd be pretty nice. <laughs> and it would probably be a nice life. But its ability to solve our problem of the human condition and to bring us happiness is limited. Why? Because it's not going to last, right? Nothing lasts, right? I love dark chocolate. I could use a piece right now. <laughs> I'm not talking about like the cheap, like don't get those Trader Joe's, you know, it's one pound. Thing. That stuff's kind of bitter, but a really good dark chocolate. And when I'm eating a piece of dark chocolate, no suffering. <laughs> right? It's just all pleasant. And I don't expect that chocolate to do more for me than it's capable of doing. So I eat it, enjoy it. Um, and then when it's gone, you just let go. You move on. Right? So it's okay to, it's not like that we can't enjoy pleasant, we want to avoid unpleasant if we can, but uh, um, it's that place of being able to, to let go, and, and, and really the question comes back to, what do you do with you get what you get? You get what you get, and what do we do with that? So that's the invitation to explore that. Um, but first I want to say that... Um, Actually, I'll come back to what I was about to say, so sorry about that. Uh, so, you know, here in California, when you get your driver's license, you go down to the Department of Motor Vehicles, and, you know, they take your picture and pay your money and do whatever, and, and then you, a few weeks later in the mail, you get your driver's license. And then um, it's good for five years Five years later, you get something in the mail. You can renew by mail. You don't have to go down and get a new picture or anything. And so you just send in your money. Um, a few weeks later, new driver's license, same picture. You pick it up, and that's me. Okay, and there you got it. Five more years come, came. Got another renew by mail, sent it in. Picture comes up. Yeah, that's me. Hadn't changed the bed. <laughs> Five more years come now. It's been 15 years. This time I have to go down to the, to the DMV and um, get a new picture. So go down, get the new picture, do whatever you do. And a few weeks later, the new driver's license come, and I get the new one, and I pull the old one out of my wallet. It's just like, what happened? <laughs> and then I look in the mirror who's that old guy looking back at me? What happened to my youth? What went wrong? Of course, nothing went wrong, right? It's just what happens. If I'm clinging to my youth, it's a setup for suffering, right? 
if I can find a way to be, you know, these are these cliches, to be at peace with things as they are, including an aging body. Don't suffer, right? So, and it's like this for anything. Things are coming and going, changing all the time. And so we hear these teachings and maybe then we hear them and say, you know, that's a good idea. Um, I'm going to sign up for that. Uh, not, uh, it's called a liberation through non-clinging. I want to, uh, you know, lessen my clinging so I can rest more happy and at peace in the present moment. And then, that's great intention and aspiration, and then, you know, you quickly find out, not always so easy to do, that you can do it in certain moments, but you'll find all the ways and all the situations in which you cannot do it. Right? And so we need some help. That's why we have all these practices and things that we do, right? To help train our minds to be able to be more steady and present and clear and awake and to open our hearts more and more, right? So it's a training that we do because we can use some help. Now, I want to be very, very respectful as I'm talking about this because I'm, I'm kind of emphasizing the side of Dharma practice, the aspect of it that's sort of learning how to find the freedom, the happiness, the peace in the midst of life as it is. But that's not to say that there's not a lot of life that's not okay and that we shouldn't try to change things. So I, I want to just name that. It's very, very important. Right? You don't throw away the part that knows. It's the serenity prayer, right? The old Christian serenity prayer. And I don't remember exactly, but it's, it's you'd think I could remember this prayer. But it's asking for the, uh, is it the, the courage? The, no. Is it the, what is it? Help me, sorry. The serenity to accept the things cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Okay, it's the two parts there. That's really a lot of Dharma right there. It's not just, you know, accept things. There's a lot of things that, you know, I don't think, I'm not saying we should try to accept things, so I want to be very respectful. If you're sitting here tonight, and I'm looking out at the size of, of the group here, I know statistically that there are some of us here tonight that are dealing with, for example, uh, chronic physical pain. You know, I don't want to sit up here and be glib and say, well, you have to learn to be with things the way they are. I don't think that'd be very respectful. You know, that's, that's you know, you, um, that's serious. And so you do the best you can. We do the best we can. And it's not hard to find a lot of situations in this world that we need to address and change. You just look, you know, all these global conflicts going on and all the suffering we see around the world. And, um, you know, if you're going into Aleppo in Syria, you know, those people don't need a Dharma talk, right? They need safety and to end the conflict and food and medicine and, you know, and all of that. So we have to look and see what's appropriate in any situation. So I want to be very respectful. We don't even have to go outside of our country. Look at all the issues we're, we're trying to deal with in this country, and they're all important. And we want to keep uh, uh, our focus on those, too, around issues around climate change and social justice and racism. And Well, I, I mean, I could just go on and on about all the things that, you know, we don't just aren't passively accepting them. No, we have to... Um, keep moving forward and really pay attention and uh, 
become more aware of our own blind spots and all of that stuff. So all of that's important about the things we need to change. So that part goes along too. There's a story of um, the great Thai meditation master, Ajahn Chah. He's no longer alive. And he had his center in Thailand and the, the monks lived in these little huts called kutis. And someone came to Ajahn Chah and reported that uh, on one of the huts, a windstorm had come and blown down. I guess maybe it was a thatched roof, something like that, blew in the roof. So the roof was half blown down and the young monk was, you know, wouldn't fix the roof. And he would sit and then when the sun came, he'd sort of scoot under the, the, the shade of the part that was... So Ajahn Chah went and said, you know, you know what's going on? You've got to fix the roof and, and you've got to take care of life. And um, the monk said, you know, I don't know what you want from me. I let go even to this extent and you're still not happy. <laughs> and then Ajahn Chah went on to give him a whole talk of, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. You have to take care of yourself. And we have to take care of each other. And this is another example of, you know, the Dharma is not saying we just come, we become passive and don't care about anything anymore. Hopefully, when we... Be- uh, actually um, can deepen in our practice and we become less reactive and more present. We can actually be more engaged and more uh, uh, effective. So I'm going to come back to that part in just a bit. But Ajahn Chah went on to say that he told the monk, you know, you have to take care of th- things. And, he, and then he said, some people can be so stupid like this. Right? So in everything I'm talking about tonight, there's this whole other piece that I may not be giving most of the emphasis, but is just as important, right? Just as important. And so when I say, um, um, you know, another thing to add in there is that it's a real kind of place of privilege, if you will, to be in a situation in life in which we actually can make changes because there's lots of things that happen for us where we don't have the option to change. If you've got chronic physical pain, for example, or if you've been de- dealing with depression for many years, and it seems like there's just no relief in sight, and it's just not going to lift, and I've tried everything. You know, that's a lot of suffering. So, um, and this is the place where we need a lot of, uh, of compassion, right? For the places where we are going to suffer, and because really, um, in anything that happens to us, any experience, internal, external, Either we need to, if we're having a difficulty with what's happening, we need to either be able to let go around it and find a way to be with it so we can be present and be at peace with it, or we better bring a, find a way to fix it, change it, or bring down the intensity to within a range within we really can work with it. Because if there's something happening for us that truly is too much, and we all have our edges, and we're not able to fix it, that's a lot of suffering. That's a lot of suffering. When I was, uh, some of you might have heard this story. I used it in some of my talks before. Um, when I was, I started my meditation practice when I was 18 and I was um, very uh, idealistic and naive. I had been meditating a couple of years maybe and I, I went, uh, went, I remember went to the dentist and the dentist, uh, the dentist, uh, said, well, I'm going to, you know, he's going to 
fix a, uh, drill my tooth for uh, fill a cavity, and he said, "Oh, I'm going to give you some Novocaine." And I said to the, I said to the dentist, um, uh, "That's all right. <laughs> don't not, don't numb me up." Um, he must have thought I was crazy. I said, uh, "I'm just going to sit here and watching whatever sensations arise and pass away." <laughs> And <laughs> I did get my tooth drilled without the Novocaine. wasn't even close. wasn't even close. I bet you if that dentist is still practicing and has that same chair, the grip marks of my hand in the hand rest is still imprinted in there. I don't remember anything more than that um, of, um, you know, you'd think I, would have, I could say, uh, wait, wait, hold on, sorry, sorry. That was a mistake. Better numb me up. He would have probably appreciated it. <laughs> I don't remember. I just, you know, but um, uh, um, it was way off the chart for me. So when something's like that and it's too much, what, you know, if you have the, if, you, if it's something you can change, of course we want to change our, our circumstances. So we don't want to stop that. So a lot of what Dharma practice is about, it's expanding our ability to hold more and more of the experiences of our life. Still being respectful of the real suffering out there that we can all have when something really is too much. We really can't change it. Yeah? And so an image I've often used is one of a circle um, I like this image a lot where, you know, you're sitting in the center and then there's the circumference of the circle, which is however big or small it is. And everything within the, the circle is uh, all the experiences of your life for which you can just rest at peace, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. And if something becomes too strong, it's sort of out, or is of such a quality, it's, it's outside the edge of your circle, that's an area that's too strong, that's too much for us. And we have to recognize that. Because right? we all have our limitations. We all have an edge. Um, and so one way to think about Dharma practice is it's expanding that circle so it encompasses more and more of our lives so we can find that place of the inner, that liberation, that inner peace um, um, uh, to hold more and more so that so we can be with more and more of who we are. We learn to befriend ourselves more, include more and more of ourselves without uh, being so negative and judgmental and so as hard on ourselves as so many of us can be, and more and more of the experiences of our life. One of the things that can help us, I want to just mention a, a few things that might help us doing this is um, first, getting clear about our intentions. And so I'm making an assumption here that you wouldn't come to, some people have joined us uh, um, on the internet or with us tonight. And um, I don't know what that was, but sorry for everyone. Uh, and, some, and of course, we're here. I don't think you would come here or join us uh, uh, online if you weren't drawn to uh, we came here to meditate, to reflect on Dharma teachings. So, you know, maybe some of you came because your friend just said, I'm going to Spirit Rock. And you said, well, what's that? And just said, come. And you kind of got dragged here. But I bet for most of us, you know, you'll have to find your own words, but you wouldn't be Dharma practitioners if you didn't want some version of 
how can we, how can I live in a way that's, again, you'll put in your own words, but that's more uh, loving, kind, empathetic, compassionate, wise, clear, present, mindful, that's less reactive and more wisely responsive, right? Or that you wouldn't want to live in a way, I hope this is true for all of us, that a way that creates less suffering for yourself and for others and that creates more well-being for yourself and others, right? So it's not for me to tell you what your intention should be, but a uh, matter of fact, if we have time tonight, we can do a little two or three minute reflection on that. But I hope if you haven't already done it, that you'll take some time in your life to reflect on your own aspirations, intentions, really in the highest sense. What, do you, what, do you really, what kind of person do you really want to be? How do I want to live? What do I really want my life to be about? What qualities do I want to, uh, do I want to develop? It's important because we need those to help us, remind us for all the times when we can't do it. You know, you, you might sit here and, I don't know, you're meditating and on metta, loving kindness, and you're radiating out loving kindness for all beings, right? And it's sincere and it's real. And then you leave here, you head for home, and you encounter actual beings. <laughs> and we find out all the ways where there's more work to be done. Yeah. So when you... Um, uh, and then you can stay in touch with your int- aspiration to help you. So I'll give you an example. I'll just share one of my aspirations. A real aspiration of mine that I take very seriously. And it's an aspiration to live in a way that my heart never closes off ever to any beings under any circumstances, period. That's a real aspiration. And I have lots of opportunities to see where work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. But I like to see them as opportunities because if that's a real aspiration that I have, if I take it seriously, then um, it's not only when I feel like it or not. All beings, you know, I don't want to get into politics tonight. Uh, I was, uh, I was in, in, uh, advised by uh, uh, more than one person who I respect, don't bring political examples tonight. And I certainly don't assume that we all share the same politics. And as a matter of fact, I don't even assume that we're all... Uh, agitated around this crazy political season. Um, But um, I've been plenty agitated about it. And I'm not going to name any particular uh, presidential candidates, but let's just say if I were to name one, it was okay. You know, if 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 your politics are are the opposite of mine, that's okay. We want to be inclusive here of everyone. I'm not, I don't want to assume we all have the same politics. You can just... uh, insert uh, the other presidential candidate and every, everything I'm saying will work for you. But if there's a particular one who shall not be named uh, that's really, really, really challenging for me, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to just walk around unconsciously? Uh, what happens to my big aspiration for all beings? Oh, including him. Whoops, I gave it away. Uh, uh, oh. Yes, including all. So, then what's needed, you have to see. But I I let my aspiration 
inform. Now, it doesn't mean if there are difficult people in this world who are out there creating a lot of suffering that, they, that we don't try to stop them. They should be stopped. And I, I don't want to get off into that more. So this gets back into that we don't just allow bad things to happen in the world and think it's okay. Hopefully we're engaged in, in our society and we want to improve it and make it better. But in addition to that, in my heart, I still have my aspiration for, 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 for the, the states of mind I want to cultivate. So, um, you know, I'll try a lot of different things. And, you know, I know I'm, but a lot of it is watching my mind. One of the benefits for those of you who have been uh, meditators for a long period of time is the awareness of what's happening is there. As a, you don't have to practice mindfulness in daily life. I'm not saying that's not a good thing to do, but the mindfulness in daily life is there as a fruit of practice. It, it, it's just there. You just know what's happening. So when ill will arises in my mind, I know it. And so practice can become very simple. If there's clinging, let go. If the heart's contracted, open the heart. And if you can't do it, then that's fine. Nothing's going wrong. We don't have to judge ourselves for, for not living up to our aspirations. We can just say, oh, it's teaching me. Right? And then we use it as a teacher. So the first thing I mentioned that can help us stay uh, connected with our intentions and aspirations can help us stay in, uh, connected with the way we want to aim ourselves. Very important around intentions, aspirations. Related to that is the second thing. Maybe we can start to see life as our teacher. See it as our teacher. And doing that really can have a big shift because using just staying with the example I've given, if there's a place where my heart closes off, I'd rather see it than not. Donald Trump has done me a big favor. Now, um, you know, there could have been many other ways to learn that lesson without that particular teacher, but given that that's what I got, and he's the one there, guess what I put up on my computer as my screensaver? <laughs> and it's not a friendly one. It's the one where, you know, he does his fingers like this when he's talking, and he's kind of going like that. Put them up there. And hang out. See what happens. Watch my mind. I don't have to fall in a gushy kind of love. By the way, again, if you if you have, I don't want to want to be respectful. If anybody has different politics, that's fine. That's not my point about who's right or wrong with the politics. You know, I can have mine. You have yours. Just put in. You can find someone to substitute. You know, and it'll work for you. You know, really important that you know. Sometimes we assume that everybody. You know, a lot of liberals or progressives come to places like that, but it's not true. And there are people who have conservative, quite conservative politics who come too. And we want to have this inclusive and safe. You know, we say we want it to be inclusive around sexual identity and race and well, for every we want everybody just to be able to come and just be authentic. Right? So, you know, but uh, and you know, hang out, and so you watch your mind, you get to know. That may not be the strategy you have to find for yourself, depending on the situation and what's needed. You have to kind of figure out for yourself what's needed. I, I, you know, it's situationally dependent, right? But the important thing is um, uh, staying close by your intention. And then the next time we fall into judging ourselves, 
And when I say use the word judging, I want to be careful also because, um, you know, there's a there's wise discernment is a kind of judgment. We don't want to lose wise discernment. So when I'm using the word judging, I'm particularly using it with a connotation of the negative, unhelpful, tearing ourselves down kind of sense or connotation. You know, we can be so hard on ourselves. You know, the, the Buddha, there's this word, you don't have to know any Pali, but uh, there's this word in Pali called manas, and it's translated as conceit. And it's very interesting because the Buddha says, if you think you're better than someone, that's conceit. We can all relate to that. Then he says, if you think you're less than someone, it's conceit. And if you think you're equal to someone, it's conceit. Isn't that interesting? Right. Well, what, what does he mean? He means it's the, he's trying to point, to, he wants us to step out of the whole paradigm of, of everything, how am I stacking up and relating to everything? We don't have to, you know, am I okay? You know, if you've, if, if you've never done this, a real interesting experiment sometimes is just pay attention to how much of your time, of your, what, what percentage of your thoughts are some version of I'm not okay, am I okay, I'm going to be okay, how are they viewing me, how, how am I stacking up? This is what the Buddha is talking about. He's asking us to get out of that whole just being so consumed about that part of ourselves, that may or may not be what's most operative for you, but for many of us it is. And so he's suggesting we don't fall into that judging of ourselves in that way. However, since so many of us are not going to take the Buddha's advice (laughs) and will continue judging ourselves, I would like to offer, if you're going to judge yourself, a much better more accurate, you know, you're the least, by the way, uh, we're all, I'm, I'm talking about me when I'm talking to you, all of us, we're often the least qualified to judge ourselves. We are all experts on our own lived experience. But we're not experts on what we make of it, how we, uh, because we're not objective. And then we have all these filters of our judgments and all these perceptions that we oftentimes don't even see. And I'm not this, I'm not good enough like that, and we can spin out. And, and you know, we're not objective. How would you view, if you're fortunate enough to have a really good friend, we don't all have that, but if you are, and that really good friend did something and they really screwed it up, and they're crying and feel terrible and everything, what would you do if you really cared about it? Would you rip them tear them down and say, you know what, yeah, you're horrible. No. You'd put, whatever, you'd put your arm around them and you'd say, you know, yeah, you screwed up. If they're fortunate enough for it to be a situation in which they can clean up their mess, not all messes will allow us to do that. That's another thing. That's a lot of suffering if you can't. Another area we need a lot of compassion. If you're fortunate enough you would say, so look, you still have your good intention. Go clean up your mess. But you still, you just got caught in your, in your conditioned patterns, right? It happens. Well, we could do the same thing for ourselves. So if we're going to judge ourselves, a more accurate way brings in some kindness. It's part of learning how to befriend ourselves. 
And befriending ourselves doesn't mean that we lose wise discernment. Right? So we still see the parts in us that aren't so healthy or don't serve us well or create suffering for others. And we want to work on those things. Yeah. But we've all got our conditioned patterns and how we got them. But they're just these patterns and we take them so personally. I mean, they are personal in that, you know, your pattern is yours and it's not mine. But we all have what I refer to, I, I, I call them our top ten tunes. And there's a lot of commonalities, but, you know, my, you know, the ones that I struggled with a lot when I was young were around self-esteem and despair. And, of course, that can take many forms. Yours may take different forms. And um, uh, when I was younger, uh, that was really kind of very operative for me. And so, um, you know, you'll have your top ten tunes. Well, how do we get those? I don't know. But they're like little computer programs in the mind. So, you know, if you sit down at your computer and you click on the, the icon for whatever, Microsoft Word, you're never going to get an Excel spreadsheet pop up. It's never going to happen. It's a program that only knows how to do one thing, run Microsoft Word. If you've got a critical mind, for example, just to use that one as an example, when the right circumstances come together to trigger off those patterns the program starts running. And it only knows how to do one thing. It's not objective. It doesn't see you objectively. It just does what it knows how to do, which is critical. And, and it doesn't care. It'll land on you. It'll land on someone else. It doesn't care. It doesn't know. It just does what it does. Right? So these patterns are the things that we're working on to liberate ourselves, to free, them, free ourselves from. And we really can free a lot from you know, Dharma practice can be deeply, utterly transformative. And I don't know if we get to the point where we stop being a human being, but a lot of these patterns get liberated and they're, they don't, they're not so operative anymore. And many of you know that. I've been meditating uh, 46 years, actually, this month when I first started. That's a, that's a long time. And now, uh, definitely some psychotherapy helped me too. But, you know, I found that over the years the Dharma practice has been just utterly transformative. And a lot of those, I'm not saying I don't have any wounded places or I can't suffer at all or ever be reactive. I was just using an example of the presidential, uh, the, you know, uh, season that's uh, election going on. So I, I, I'm not immune from fear, from ill will, right? But a lot of things have just been just evaporated away. They just aren't very operative anymore. We can get healed up. So the practices really work, but we have to take the long-term view. And we don't want to fall into a despair judging ourselves because we're doing the best we can. Every one of us here doing the best we can. And if we, so if you're going to judge ourself, yourself, do it by your intention and your aspiration. Because when ill will comes up in my mind... In any situation, I haven't lost my intention and aspiration, and I can know it's true, and I can get in touch with it and still feel the goodness of it. And you can connect with your intention and aspirations and feel the goodness of it. It's important. You know, in Buddhism, we make a big deal about suffering, and it seems like it's some people will complain, you know, it's the all suffering all the time channel. 
And it is true that if we want to come to, to liberate ourselves from our suffering, we need to come to understand our suffering. And to understand it, we need to experience it. And you don't have to go looking, right? It will find you. That's why in meditation practice, I emphasize ease and relaxation, being kind to ourselves, caring for ourselves as much as we can. The deeper stages of concentration of samadhi and meditation are really deeper, deep stages of letting go. And so that comes a deep ease. And you still get plenty of suffering to work with. So that side of it's important, but it's only half of the equation. We also need to understand everything that's good and right in us and that's beautiful in us. And one of the things, if you haven't already found this out, is in meditation, you will come to know places in you, places in the mind that maybe you had no idea how beautiful your mind could be. That's real. And you'll find places in there Maybe you didn't want to know what's in there. My wife uh, once came home from a, on a retreat, three or four month retreat, something like that. And we had spoken a little bit over the course of the retreat just to connect in just briefly, but I hadn't talked to her much. She was just on a retreat, so she came home. She was a long, long time meditator. I said, uh, how was your retreat? First thing out of her mouth, she said, well, I, I just don't know if this meditation is so great. Obviously, it had a tough retreat. She said, I mean, uh, there were things in there like I didn't want to see. Do I have to see everything? Do I have to feel everything? There was stuff in there that I didn't want to know was in there. I, I can relate to that. And then she said, and I thought it was pretty funny, I'm sure she was just joking, she said, you know, maybe it'd be better if you just go through life, you don't feel anything, you don't know any, you don't know nothing, and then maybe just before you die, it's one moment of, oh shit, and then you're dead. <laughs> Instead of a whole life of having to get in touch with this and work. <laughs> but of course, we don't really want to live like that because these places are operative in us. And they're working on us in ways that are unconscious, that we don't feel. And that's where we get these reactive patterns. So, but if we see everything as our teacher, and we can hold ourselves with kindness, then when these things come up, we don't have to like get contracted and be so hard on ourselves. We can just see, wow, there's still a place in me uh, where I can be, you know, like we'll call it the not so beautiful parts of my mind. Hmm, more work to, to be done there if I want to free myself from them. So you get the difference in just the tone of voice, how we can hold it with some kindness, just like you would a good friend. So I'll just tell you ahead of time in case you don't know. And I, again, I'm, I'm not immune from anything I'm saying here either. Um, you're going to fall flat on your face and screw it up a thousand more times. Now you know ahead of time. So we don't have to be surprised. And you're not doing anything wrong until, by, in, in our tradition, by definition, by definition, until we're all Buddhas ourselves, there's still places of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind or the potential. And so when these came up, we can just say, oh, it's, it's enlightenment training. It's, un, it's revealing places that are... You can be, in, in, in the Theravada tradition, they have a, a model of what's called four stages of enlightenment. 
I don't know if this is how the universe actually works, but this is the model. And uh, um, even the first stage of enlightenment, it's pretty, you know, first stage of enlightenment, that's a big deal, right? Uh, you're not immune from all this stuff. You can be in the third stage of enlightenment and stuff comes, can come up by definition. So relax. <laughs> we can learn to befriend ourselves, which means hold ourselves with kindness and care and do the best you can. You just do the best you can. And if you can't do it, please don't beat yourself up because about how terrible you are because you can't even be kind to yourself. And if you forget, all right, you'll suffer a little. You don't worry about the times when you forget. Try not to worry about that because what can you do? You know, one of the things uh, when you're giving, I'm going to wrap up in just a few minutes and then we'll open up for the rest of the time for for some questions or, or comments, whatever. And that'll include people who are, who are online. They'll have an opportunity if they want also. You know, one of the... Um, uh, so what's the instruction? So you say you give meditation instructions and say whatever you're practicing, say mindfulness of breathing, being with your breath, being with your breath. And then you forget and you're just lost in thought. What's the instruction? Anybody want to say? Right, come back, start over, right? It was a trick question. There is no instruction when you're gone. You don't even know you're gone. It's only when you've woken up and realized you've been lost and you're already back that you even have the possibility of then using an instruction and reconnecting with your breathing and not beat yourself up and all whatever it is and just start over in a relaxed way. So when you're gone, just be gone. Don't worry. You don't even know. I mean, it's true we don't have the possibility, we're going to react or respond in any situation according to the condition patterns of our minds and depending on what that is, you know, it's, we may create a lot of suffering out there. You do the, and that's why we need compassion for ourselves for those times. The more we practice, those times diminish. That stream of wakefulness carries through more and more. It's a great gift of the Dharma. And when we are lost, it's much less deeply and, and not for very long. So that's the real fruit of the practice. Many of you maybe have tasted this for yourself. When we're present, at least we have the opportunity, the chance to make a wise response rather than just a reactive, be reactive, right? But when you're gone, just be gone, don't worry. And when you're back, no problem then either because then you're back. And if we can remember our uh, intentions, and if you forget, you know, then we can use those to help inform us moving forward. Hopefully, we can be more relaxed about this, knowing that we're all on a path that's heading in one way, that we can feel the goodness of our intention. Really, I just want to emphasize one more time, it's, it's important. This is what's most fundamentally true. Your reactive mind is not what's most fundamentally true. That's just these patterns up here that runs, up, runs off. What's deeply true about you is your good heart. And if you don't think you have a good heart, if you really can't find it when we're done, just come up and talk to me because it's, it's not far away. Just connect with your intention or your aspiration and you can just say, 
Well, is it true that I wish I wasn't such a horrible, rotten, terrible person would like to be better or whatever? <laughs> and your judgment about yourself is? And it's like, yeah, it is true that, that you want to... That's a good intention right there. Well, this talk, I think, was all over the place. I hope it was useful. And thank you for hanging out, and I appreciate that. And I'm going to stop now, and we have, I think, about 25 minutes. And so there's somebody who has a mic to go around. So if, uh, if any of you have any comments or questions, and then there may or may not be some that come in from online. Anyone? But use the mic because it goes online. Is it on? You should hold it like this, pointing right straight into it. How's that? Is that better? Try this one. <laughs> okay. I still don't think I need a microphone, but as you wish. So when you talked about the critical mind program, the loop that goes on, it reminded me of how Dalai Lama said, well, how do you, why do you Westerners you know, hate yourself so much? And so what's been on my mind for a few years is, to, is it some kind of cultural imperative of American society where the dog-eat-dog -dog competitive thing, like somebody has to win, so the rest of us are losers, and how is this inculcated in us since childhood? And then when you were just talking, I had a little insight, and I'll ask you if this is a reasonable thought. It seems to me it comes almost from a primate mind, from a very primitive uh, instinctual state of like chimpanzees hating each other across the river because they're defending their hunting grounds and their mates. Because when you said, well, if you can transcend that, you're not sure if we'd still be human beings anymore. And that's what kind of clicked for me. I was like, wait a minute. Maybe this stuff is hardwired instinctually, genetically. And yeah. that's why it's so difficult to overcome. Yeah. Your thoughts on that? Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'm the best person to, to answer that question. It's not my, really my area of expertise. But I would say, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know. And it's, if you want to explore that and dig into that and figure that out, I guess that's fine. But I, I tend to come up from a different place, not looking at, well, why, or, but it's more looking at what's actually real and true, not the why or how did I get here. But to me, all of this, whatever we start with, whatever we're talking about, starts with what's actually real and true, and just to take a look at that. And it takes the judgmentalness out of it. And so if what's real and true is... Uh, say, for example, like I was saying earlier, my heart's closed off, there's some ill will, whatever. That's just what's actually real. That's the starting point. And then from there, then it's like, well, what's needed? And what's needed depends on, one, one where I'm aiming myself. And then, so I just keep it simple like that. And just, I, I don't know. Uh, but there's probably people who are more qualified to answer, but sorry. Thank you. Hi. My question is, um, I'm wondering if you could share more about the opportunities, the positive opportunities and challenges. Could you, could you say more? Or? 
Well, I think that's why I want you to say more. Well, you, well, you, well <laughs> but I mean, I that's know. such a, I, I'm not sure you say, say more about the positive opportunities. I really, it really hit a note for me when you were speaking about that's the opportunity for your, um, for you to keep your heart open. This thing that's really challenging you, this, right. this place that you might want to walk away from or where your ego wants to come in and criticize how do you, how do you do that? How do you keep your heart open? How do you right. get beyond that, or see it as a teacher or an opportunity? So that's a that's a deep question, and I don't mean to be uh, dismissive or glib in any way. Um, I don't know how. It's a, that's the question that we're all resting in. It's like a koan of the question. It's like how do I do this? So the way I would just invite you to hold. I mean, I could give you some generic practices for deepening, opening the heart or whatever, but perhaps one starting way, I'll just, you know, you see if this is helpful or not, is when difficulties come, whatever the situation is, again, first we have to be awake enough and present to know what's happening so we're not just lost on automatic pilot. And then if we, uh, by the way, that's my definition of, of mindfulness is being mindful just means not being on automatic, lost on automatic pilot. Some, I'll come back to the your thing in just a moment. When people sometimes say, you know, oh, you lost your, they lost their mindfulness, they went unconscious. We know what they mean, but they're act, you're not unconscious, you're conscious, you're just completely caught up in things. And so another way to think of it is uh, what keeps us from being on automatic pilot, and another thing that I actually meant to talk more about tonight and I just didn't get to is uh, one way to think of all of this is how can we live in a way that's not disconnected but disentangled? What will support me to be disentangled? Because sometimes it can feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be dispassionate or kind of like the untouched witness. You know, there's all this messiness of life over here and then there's some space and I'm kind of the, the observer. And it can, can, if we're not careful, have a connotation or a sense of being uh, disconnected. And these practices are actually uh, the opposite. We're trying to connect deeply and be present with ourselves and with others and with life very intimately, but in a way that's disentangled. So what does it mean to be disentangled? You know, if you, if, if, if you, we talk about non-clinging and we think that means to be detached, but you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to have any loved ones in your life, again, some of us do and some don't. If you were to say to that person, um, I'm detached from you. I don't think that's going to go over that well. If you say I'm not clinging to you, I think people would appreciate it. So the question is what gets, takes us to a place of non-clinging or disentanglement? And so oftentimes what I find can help is just to pose the question for ourselves. Okay, well, what, what, what will help me free myself now. We just stand in the question ourselves. And the reason that can sometimes be helpful because it can help shine a light first on, well, where's the place that's got me hooked? What's the hook? Why am I not able to find the liberation? Why is my heart closing off here? Or I'm becoming contracted or constricted or, or you know, stressful in some way. And, we, and we, if we can see what it is, sometimes just shining the light of mindfulness on it is enough, and it self-liberates. It's like, oh, I see what happened. I got reactive every time, you know, this thing, it triggers me, or whatever. If we, sometimes we don't know. 
Uh, sometimes shining the light of awareness is not enough, and then we need to do other things. And we, there's, it, it, I can't give you a lot of specifics because I don't know you in particular, but we have to look and make our best assessment, our best wise discernment. And if you don't know, you do the best you can. Really, that's the generic answer. So, you know, I don't know what... So to say more than that, I think our willingness and ability to be present and to not turn away. And again, there are times when we do need to turn it off and turn away. And, you know, if we're fortunate enough to get a break and not always, the answer is not always be with something. You know, when I was with the dentist and it was, the answer was not be present with it. It was like, you know, give me some Novocaine. So, but for the situations when we can and should learn to work with it. And then we have to explore and see, well, you know, what's happening in me and what will help me be more present. So, and then it's a willingness to just to open and explore. And I really, and we do the best we can. I'm, I'm sorry I can't be more specific. You don't need to apologize. That's a great response. Thank you. Well, somebody, some other hands may come up. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I can keep uh, talking also. That's. Uh... <laughs> it's a little bit different than what you were talking about, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the differences and similarities between samadhi practice and vipassana practice. <laughs> Okay. Just like, I mean, some people right. talk about one needs to come yes, before yes. the other and, or that there are two, and some people say, right. no, they're all the that's same. That's right. So, um, and in fact, um, that's the whole day. Uh, no, that's going to be the uh, December 10th day long will be on that. But let me just say a little bit about that. So that's a big, big topic. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's my whole book. <laughs> so... Uh, let me say this. When we use the word samad, I'll just, real, I'll just say it quickly, and we won't be able to really do it justice, but it's like this. Um, I think I can do it. Let me see. When we use the word samadhi, that's both the Pali and the Sanskrit. It's the term that's generally translated as concentration. Personally, I don't, I'm not, you know, everybody uses the term, so we're kind of stuck with it, but I, I don't care for it because it has too many connotations I don't like. Samadhi really means undistracted. And there's a lot of ways that an undistracted mind can manifest. You can be so undistracted, focused in a narrow way on something that you don't notice other things around you. But you can also be undistracted in a way where the mind's quite open and inclusive and present and aware of many, many things where the mind is not moving, but you're still aware and is very inclusive awareness. There's a lot of different flavors of that. All of the many, many meditation practices that are out there, the different... Uh, are really aiming to strengthen, at least in our tradition, there's just a few qualities. There's all the heart-centered qualities of compassion and loving kindness and all that. And then there's mindfulness, concentration, and insight. Mindfulness is being present, knowing what's happening. And then we use that mindfulness to direct our attention in certain ways to train the mind so that we can learn to steady it more. 
And then we can turn that steady mind into these insights to see more of the places where we create suffering and how to let go of our suffering. That's kind of a quick thing to, to say. Um, and all of these practices fall, you know, the, the, all, of, all the practices belong to one of these three branches of the meditation family. Let me say it that way. There's practices that emphasize concentration. There's practices that emphasize the vipassana, the insight. And then there's the path, which is more the way I teach in practice, that synthesizes them into one path. It's all good practice. None is better than another. From what I can see, you know, there's all these masters teaching and all these styles and traditions, and people seem to be getting tremendous benefit practicing in all these different styles. So if you ever say, hear anyone say, oh, well, this is the best way to practice, not true. Have they practiced in all the other traditions and ways? They're not qualified to say that. The best practice is the one, you know, think of it like there's this inner sanctuary and all these techniques are different doorways in. You don't need to get hung up on a particular doorway. What's important is to find your doorway. Any practice that's, that, that deepens these qualities of the heart, steadies the mind, deepens the clarity and the presence and all these will bring one to liberation. And there's many, many techniques and ways to do it. Now, some people then will say, when you go to, this is a gross generalization, I have to be really careful here, but if you just know that it's, I got to say something, so I'm going to make some really gross generalizations, but it kind of makes the point. You ask the questions, I'm going to try to answer. The practices that are called Vipassana or Insight depending on the technique and the teacher and the style of the method, they all will want the mind to be undistracted to a certain degree. You know, no Buddhist teachers say, you know, be distracted, <laughs> right? So some degree of presence. And then, but if you're really emphasizing the insight, you might uh, not be emphasizing developing the, the samadhi, but getting enough so then you can just be more present for, and there's many different techniques, but per, perhaps be present for the range of experiences that come and go, or you may actually look for particular characteristics like the rising and passing away, or many, many ways it's practice. You're emphasizing, you're leaning on the insight side of the practice. There, on the, the path of samadhi is emphasizing the developing the undistracted mind, and it's a big topic um, I can't get into it. There's these states called jhana and all these experiences, and it, it's too much to get into here. But just say because people do that because they value the power of a, of, of a mind that has the deep samadhi. The way I think about it is uh, the, the deeper stages of samadhi are like turning your mind into either both of these images work, Hubble telescope or electron microscope. Take your pick. And sometimes it feels like one and sometimes feels like another. When the mind is like that, the level of clarity and perception and knowing is on a whole different level. And we see the subtleties of the patterns and the way we create suffering and the way to liberation and the way to let go of our suffering and all that. So people practicing in those styles may want to really emphasize the concentration and then they may want to consciously turn to insight style of practices. Or there's also one thing that does not get talked about enough. There's a whole purification of mind that happens just through the samadhi. 
And if you did nothing but emphasize the samadhi, in, regardless of the style, in truth, all the insights come too. But then there's a third way it's practiced. This is the way I teach if you were to do a retreat with me, which I, I value and emphasize them both. How do you do that? Real simple. You do practices that just are learn, they're concentrating your mind. Say you just stay with your breath. You keep coming back to it and coming back. And um, I, I know I'm clipping along at a fast pace here. I hope I'm not talking too fast, but uh, I'm just trying to cover this. So uh, if this is confusing, just forget about it. Um, and uh, and you, um, you just keep getting more concentrated by staying on one object, right? You don't even have to think about insight. On its own, there'll be a lot of times when you can't concentrate or you're suffering in some way. Or you're on the insight side of the practice. Then... You have to have the tools to work with what's happening then, which may be a lot of more insight-oriented practices. Then when it settles out, you can concentrate again. You're back on the concentration side. So we let our present moment experience inform what's needed. Again, there's a lot of details of technique and method that I'm not getting into, how to do it. But, and we can kind of surf along, right along the, the wave of whatever's happening, and we let our present moment experience know when we're on the concentration side, it tells us we're on the insight side, and then we just need the proper tools in our toolkit to address what's happening. And you don't have to separate them out. So it's just a matter of finding the style of practice that you feel more drawn towards. And the good news is you can't go wrong. It's all good. Anyway, was that useful or at all? Or? It's a hard t- question to answer in a short answer. Um, I was just wondering, can you talk about how you discovered your intention? You've, you've talked about how it is, but it, it, I know it's not that easy. I'm sure it's quite hard and difficult and... How long have you had this intention and been practicing with it? I don't know how long I've had it. I, I, yeah. I don't know for myself how to answer how I discovered it. I just, I don't know. It's just been a long time. And I, I can't think back to, you know, how do these things, I don't know, for any of us. So I would just come back to you. I, I don't want to, if you don't want to focus on yourself, that's okay. Don't just let me know. But if we can just hold, stay here for a second, how is it for you? Do you know your intentions or, or at least you have a... If you don't know them specifically, do you have a vague kind of just sense of something at all? Or I just think that there's so much. It's really hard to just focus in on one thing when a lot of us have to deal with a lot we're, of... But we're all a mix of many, yeah. many things. So that's true for everyone. I guess my invitation here when I was thinking of it is, is first of all, I was making an assumption that when, when we reflect on intention and aspiration, that that would be from a Dharma sense. That may not be what's true for everyone. I don't know what's most important for everyone's life. It could be, you know, make as much money as possible, you know, before you die or something. And like, you know, I can't judge that. So we each have to come to our own. All I would suggest is when we are reflecting on our intentions and aspirations, at least let's have Dharma inform us to help us as we're ma- so, and then and then if it's if Dharma is useful or not, inform the decisions we make, and then really reflect. and And you may need to spend some time hanging out and really just go. Well, you know, when I really think about, maybe think about it like when you've come to the end of life, for example, um, and and think, you know, well, what what will have, have mattered to me the most? Maybe it could be an example. 
you can just see if that's useful. You know, what will I have cared about most? And when I think for myself, um, you know, you may have something different. It's pretty clear in my mind. It's like what I will have cared about is did I live in a way that was, did I, did I just try my best? It's not how well or perfectly I did it, but did I try my best to live in a way that was kind, that had from a place of empathy, that created less suffering, the least suffering possible for myself and for others. You know, one simple way is that creates the least suffering for myself and others and the most well-being for myself and others. Maybe, is that true? Is that an intention you have, an aspiration? I would hope it's everybody's, yeah. Hang out and see. You don't have to know. Maybe it might take, maybe it's a long time, but, you know, just let it, reveal itself to you but it's just maybe you do a little formal time every day or to just sit with it so I think we have about five more minutes we don't have to go the whole five minutes or or we will certainly end on time respect the the time at 9.15 just one moment uh, she's going to bring a mic over You said something about a meditation at the end. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, we can do that. Okay. Okay. That's a good idea. Matter of fact, I think we have exactly the amount of time to do this. Okay, what we'll do is if you want to participate, if you don't, perhaps you can just sit silently. And, but we're going to end in five minutes. And this is a little guided reflection on intention. Thank you for reminding me about that. I'd forgotten so what, what, what it's going to be is, I'll just tell you, it's going to be four questions I'm going to ask. Each of the questions I'll pose in maybe two or three different ways. You know, sometimes you articulate it one way will resonate for you more than another. And so I'm going to just offer that. And then um, uh, um, well, because of time, we'll maybe have silence for maybe only 30 seconds. It won't be much, but just to hang out with it. And then we'll move to the next of the questions. And then you may get a hit on something, or if not, then you may want to take them with you and spend more time with them. And if you, if you do like these, this inquiry, don't worry. If you don't remember, come up at the end. I'm happy to tell you what they are. Yeah. Okay. So I invite you to... If you're not already doing so, again, see if you can find a posture where your body can be as comfortable as possible. And perhaps checking into your body and your mind and your heart again, as we did in the beginning of the meditation period, if there's any tension or tightness or any place that's not at ease, you know, see if you can relax around it just for these three or four minutes. And then the first reflection, what is the deepest or highest intention or aspiration for how you want to live your life or the kind of person you want to be? Or you could say, what is of most highest importance to you? Or you could say, what do I want my life to really be about? I mean, really in the deepest and highest sense. 
what are my deepest or highest aspirations for how I live my life, who I want to be. Okay, that was the first reflection. And now the second reflection. I know this is short. Second reflection. When you look at how you're actually living your life, the reality, the actuality of life, in what ways or to what extent, to what degree, is there, are there disconnect connects or gaps between your highest, deepest aspirations and intention and the reality of your life. In what ways or to what extent is the way you're actually living not synced up with, not in alignment with your highest aspiration? In what, in what ways is there some break or disconnect or gap The third reflection, to whatever extent or in whatever ways there is a gap or a disconnect between your deepest and highest intentions and the reality of your life, what causes that? What causes the gap? What are the things or situations or forces that pull you or influence you in some way that cause you to fall away from, to, to lose connection to act in ways that are not in alignment with, with your highest intentions. What causes the gaps? And the fourth reflection. What would support you to close up the gaps? What things, situations, people, whether it's internally or externally, would support you to live more authentically, more of the time, really from that place in alignment with the place of your deepest or highest intentions or aspirations? What would support you?
So I hope those reflections have been useful. Of course, like anything, if they're useful, keep them, use them. If not, you just let it go. And, um, and we've actually gone one minute over the time. And so let me just thank you all. It was just really great to hang out with you and to be able to practice together. I appreciate it a lot. And um, we'll end. And I just hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.